Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs open their minds to new ideas and concepts that will help you during your entrepreneurial journey and during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 53. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas, and today I interview Chad Robichaud. Besides being a third-degree black belt and former MMA pro fighter, Chad is a former Force Recon Marine who served eight deployments in Afghanistan. He is the president and founder of Mighty Oaks Foundation, a leading nonprofit organization serving the military community. He shared his struggles with PTSD that inspired him to create the Mighty Oaks Foundation and help other veterans since at least 20 veterans commit suicide daily in the United States. He also mentioned the importance of being intentional with everything you do in your life. And his main message is, it's not about you, it's about others, which inspired me to title this podcast, It's Not About You. Stick around for my final thoughts after the interview when I expand on this topic. Stay tuned right after Jiu-Jitsu Tribe former Live Jiu-Jitsu's message. Oos. The BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the nonprofit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, former Live Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe supports social projects who offer free Jiu-Jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facilities makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coach donates all the profits of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit www.tribecharity.org. It's www.tribecharity.org. Let me introduce you to today's guest, Chad Robichaud. Chad is a third-degree black belt from Carson Gracie Jr. He is a former pro MMA competitor, having competed in organizations such as the World Series of Fighting, Strike Force, and Bellator. Chad is a former Force Reconnaissance Marine and Department of Defense contractor who served eight deployments in Afghanistan. In addition to his military service, Chad has served as a special agent with the U.S. Federal Air Marshal Service. He is the president and founder of Mighty Oaks Foundation, a leading nonprofit organization serving the military community with highly successful peer-to-peer faith-based combat trauma recovery programs and combat resilience conferences. Chad has been married to his wife, Kathy, and has three sons who he teaches and trains jiu-jitsu with. Chad, welcome to the podcast. Uh, great to be on. Thank you for having me. It's a great we're talking prior to recording Small World on episode 44, Marshall Carper. I talked with him, gave a suggestion, like, hey, who, who do you think it could be a good fit for the show? And then he mentioned your name. So I went to Instagram and like, hey, wait a minute. He's training at GD Jiu-Jitsu Prescott. And <laughs> so that was a nice surprise. See you there. So how long have you been in Prescott? Prescott I moved here. Arizona for people who don't know. Yeah, I moved here in, uh, in November. And, uh, you know, I was, I was training and, uh, and teaching at Carlson Gracie headquarters in Temecula, California, which is where our foundation's headquarters is. It's actually next door to each other. And, uh, so I, I, uh, I moved here really just to have a place of kind of refuge. Prescott's a really remote place. And 
I travel a lot and my family uh, is very busy with the foundation work that we do. So just a place that was a little more quiet and slower pace. And so came here and, uh, and, and ran into this jujitsu guys here, uh, Steve Jetson and, 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 and Rob uh, Johnson and, and started training with those guys. And they're just great guys and a lot of fun to train. Cool. Steve's so, a monster. <laughs> so how martial arts and jujitsu show up in your life? When was it? Yeah, well, I grew up uh, in southern Louisiana, which is not uh, big, uh, big into martial arts. You're not, not a really place known for martial arts, like major cities in the United States. But I, I grew up a very like, a rough childhood, and my grandmother wanted to keep me, find something to be productive for me, keep me busy at a very young age. And so she dropped me off at a, at a karate school at five years old. And, uh, and I started training karate, and I don't think I maybe resonated with it as much. But uh, early on, I would say in that first year as a child, my, and just know this from talking to my grandmother, I started ju- doing, uh, transitioned over to doing traditional jiu-jitsu, more like a self-defense style of Japanese jiu-jitsu, and that eventually grew into judo. And so my whole childhood, I was in the traditional jiu-jitsu and judo uh, until I was 17 years old and, and joined the military. Yeah, and when jiu-jitsu specifically show up in your life? Well, when I, when I first went into become a, a reconnaissance Marine, a, a year off of martial arts because a lot of training, but my platoon sergeant, when I went in, he had some background in martial arts. And so we started training what I thought was grappling and jujitsu. And, and then later that year, this was about 1996, I was looking for a place to train, uh, train in structured martial arts again, looking for jujitsu. And I seen a sign on base that said jujitsu. And I remember thinking like, that lady seems like it's spelled wrong. But I went and I went on the mats and trained and these guys were blue belts. And I thought, man, like, I'm going to kill these guys. You know, they're going to get to spar. These guys are blue belts. And what I didn't know is they were blue belts from Torrance, California. And they were Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu blue belts. And I got just my butt kicked. Hmm. And I think when uh, people have that experience with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, they have two reactions. Either one, they don't want anything to do with it anymore. Or two, they're like where I was, where I have to learn this. Like, oh my gosh, this was like, I got dominated. I want to learn what these guys know. And so I was hooked immediately and uh, began training with those guys only once a week because they would come from Torrance. And then in 1997, I I moved into, uh, I went from active duty to reserves in the military. And when I got to New Orleans, I went to what is now Gracie Baja uh, or or Brazilian Jitsu NOLA, New Orleans, which, and I started training there full-time in 1997. And during this journey, how do you feel jujitsu relates to life? I believe that we all have like different pillars in our life, like different foundations. And for me, martial arts was one of those. I think uh, the being becoming a reconnaissance marine is very difficult. The attrition rate in most special forces would be like 80, 90% washout rate. It's uh, for marine recon, it's about the same, you know, 80, 90% of people wash out. And I think this is the first time I've seen my martial arts, like childhood experiences, translate into life where the hard work, the character, the discipline, the perseverance, all those attributes and principles you learn on the mat, the humility to continue learning and grow uh, because you realize you're failing at something. So instead of running away from it, you face it head on and you drill and study and, and uh, grow yourself. Uh, I believe all those things in my life from growing up doing as a martial artist became a pillar in my life. Now, I, I believe I, I learned early on how to transition that into professional life, but it wasn't until probably in my late 30s, mid 30s, where I really have been learning how to transition that into my personal life and making just the wise choices as a, as a man, as a husband, as a father, those things. And uh, understanding how to take those principles of character, discipline, integrity, uh, hard work, and humility off the mat 
in, into life. Beautiful. Now, when did you have the spark to pursue the Mighty Oaks Foundation? When that happened? When, when was it? Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, this is the one that could be a long answer. Because for me, I, I transitioned from what I think most people in the world would have saw as successful uh, into something that people uh, would have not understood. So uh, before I started Mighty Oaks, I ran a very big school. I ran a Gracie Baja, the Woodlands, Texas. And I had almost a thousand students. So, you know, this is, you know, a very successful business. Uh, I was at the peak of my fighting career and that, and that peak of the success as a business and an athlete is when I made the transition to Mighty Oaks. And so a little bit of backstory of why that happened. Um, my, my family, by the way, is a three generation Marine Corps family. My father was a Marine in Vietnam. My son right now is after the to Afghanistan as a Marine. And so my time as a Marine, uh, I did eight deployments, as you said earlier to, uh, to Afghanistan. And a lot of the things that we serve people at Mighty Oaks with, PTSD, divorce, suicide, I struggled with those things when I came home. I came home and I was diagnosed with PTSD. I was in a terrible, terrible uh, state. I was um, having severe panic attacks. Uh, I couldn't sleep, nightmares. And, um, and I didn't really know what to do because my counselor, my psychologist gave me a lot of medicine. And his medicine made me feel terrible. It made me feel numb and I, I felt like I couldn't function. But I was in this real desperate state of panic. I felt like the only way I know how to describe the way I felt like panic wise was like if I was tied to the bottom of a swimming pool and I could see the, the air and fighting to get the air and then, and then you just never drown. You never die. You're just in a constant state of panic. That's the state that I was in. And I was completely ashamed because, you know, I'm in this special operations task force doing this job in Afghanistan. And now I felt like I'm not with my team anymore. I felt like I failed. So it was just a really bad state. And so my wife, my counselor, encouraged me to get on the mats and do jujitsu. I'd already been fighting professionally. I was a brown belt at the time. And, uh, and I was undefeated as a professional fighter. So it was something I was good at. But honestly, like, I felt so physiologically, like the symptoms were so bad. I felt like if I did anything to get my heart rate up, that I would just die. And so they convinced me. I got on those mats. And when I got on those wrestling mats uh, and did jujitsu for the first time, I felt like I found the cure. Because you can't think about uh, Afghanistan or hardships of life while you're grappling. Your mind has to be focused and engaged. And so it was something that was really healthy for me. And, uh, and it was something that I thought would writ in those problems. And people with jujitsu just can bear with me because, you know, I'll say something bad about jujitsu, I'll say something good. For me at that time, I think I've, like many people would climb in a bottle of alcohol or, or take pills or abuse medicine. Like that's what I did with jujitsu. So while jujitsu is good, medicine could be good for you while you're sick, but you could abuse medicine. And, uh, and I did that. I took jujitsu totally out of context. I would spend 24 hours a day at the gym, hanging out at the gym, training, uh, preparing for competitions and fights. And I didn't ever take time to get healthy. And so I took escape this for you. It was an escape for me. I took something that was good for me and I abused it. And I think as a martial artist, we have to know that this has to be balanced in our life. And, uh, and I didn't understand that at the time. So I hid there. I didn't ever get better. And so that created a really bad downward spiral in my life because now I'm still unhealthy. I'm still dealing with panic attacks. I'm angry. My, at home, my wife and children are dealing with somebody that's being verbally abusive to them in our home. My, I was just a ter terrible person in my home. But I'm surrounded by people in the gym. And you know, as a professor, people will lift you up and tell you everything you want to hear and not hold you accountable to the things you need to hear. And uh, so I had this environment where I had no accountability. 
and people were just kind of lifting me up and it was a very dangerous situation that eventually would come crashing down and it did. Uh, at the end of that three years, I ended up separating from my family. I was in an affair. Uh, I, I told my wife we were getting divorced. We sold our home and, and signed two separate 12-month leases on apartments. And uh, I remember sitting my kids down and telling them that it was going to be better, that they weren't going to have to hear the fighting anymore and all these things. And my wife and I, uh, as we separated, we had two different responses. My wife, uh, my wife went and she, went, she got plugged into a church and she started you know, just really getting her life in a solid position. And for me, I was booked to fight in strike force at this time. So I went to the apartment. I had all the kind of people that were cheering me on. And it was really cool because Professor Droclino was my professor uh, at that time. So we were on the same card together. So I was really like focused and I was excited about this fight. And I remember fighting in the Toyota Center. And won, I won this kind of battle of a fight against Alberto de Leon and I remained undefeated. And so it was like, should have looked like a successful moment in my life. But when I won that fight and went back home to my apartment, something hit me. I, I just felt completely alone, probably because out of the 10,000 people that was watching that fight in the auditorium of the Toyota Center, I re remember when my hand was raised and I was like, so, you know, when you win a fight, like all the weight comes off of you. Like you prepared so much and all this pressure and you win and it's like a thousand pounds off of you. And I remember like feeling that relief, but then feeling like, man, Kathy's not here. Like she's always my cheerleader. She's not here. And and I went back to my apartment uh, and I just really processed all that and processed how the people that hurt my wife and my children. And, and I remember thinking like, I blame everyone else, but in this moment I realized like I'm the problem. Like, and so I came to this thought in my mind that if I could eliminate from my, myself from the situation, my family's going to be better off. And I decided that I was going to take my life. Now, the reason I did wasn't because I thought I wanted to escape my pain. I thought my family would be sad without me, but they would be better off. And um, this is at a very high moment of success in my life. Professionally, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, with a big school, as an athlete, everyone that would have looked at my life at that time and thought I was successful. But this is a moment where I said, my family's going to be sad without me, but they're going to be better off. And so I, I would sit in my closet and I'd put my family's pictures on the floor. And I had a, my pistol in my hand and I'd be thinking this, trying to build myself up. Uh, now, if the, if you, the listeners don't know that that same thought finds a home in the hearts of about 20 plus veterans every day with the veteran suicide rates over 20 a day. And, and, you know, I remember thinking how I was going to do this. And what kept me from doing it was I knew the only person that had my key to my apartment was my son, Hunter, the one that's deployed to Afghanistan right now. And I thought, man, I can't let my, my kid find me this way. And, uh, in that moment, my wife, uh, my wife had talked to me on the phone. She said I sounded distressed. And I'm sitting in my closet with my pistol in my hand, trying to build my courage up again. And uh, she knocked on my door. She banged on my door. And I knew she would have never made it in my closet, but something about when you're ashamed of something, you're going to hide. I remember hiding my, that pistol under a blanket. And I answered the door, and we got in this argument. And she asked me a question that, that radically changed my life. She asked me uh, how I could do everything I did in the Marine Corps to become a recon Marine, to to do all the schools and the deployments, the hard things that I had to do to, in, in, the, in the military and the discipline it took to do those things, to do fights, right? To cut weight. I cut like, I'm not a big guy. I fight flyweight and bantamweight. I cut 35 pounds before. Like the discipline it takes to do that kind of stuff that we do as martial artists. She's like, how could you do all of that? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And, uh, you know, for me, that's probably no more soul cutting words to be called a quitter. And uh, she was absolutely right. I've been successful at professional things, but when it came to the most important things, like being a husband, being a father, being that young 17-year-old kid, for me, the Marine Corps is a second chance at life. And, 
And I quit on all the most important things in life, including, including my own will to live. And so in that moment, I made a, a pretty radical decision that I was going to turn things around. I didn't know how, but I knew I couldn't do it alone. And I knew I couldn't do it to people that I was surrounded by. And so uh, I'm trying to keep this as short as possible, but I have to say that I would not have been able to make the decision without my wife introduced me to a man named Steve Toth, who stepped in my life to mentor me. And Steve never did martial arts before. He never was uh, in the military. He was a small business owner in town. And he met me at a Starbucks coffee shop. And he told me something that, that radically changed my life. I had actually written a, pl a plan like on paper, like how I was going to fix my life really. Cause I wanted him to show it to my wife. Like, and I'm trying to be manipulative and I slide it over to him. And I told them that, uh, that, you know, Hey, check this out. Like I, I really have a good plan here. And he didn't even read it. He slid it back over to me and told me I was going to fail. And I remember being like really mad. Like I, I got immediately got really, really hot headed about it. And he tapped in that paper and he said, if this thing doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, I'm not going to waste your time and I'm not going to waste mine. Uh, now I know this show isn't about faith or anything like that, but it's really a big part of my story because I had tried everything. I tried the pills. I tried the counseling. I tried MMA and jujitsu and I love MMA and jujitsu, but none of those things changed my situation. So I reached a moment in my life to where I had to say, answer that challenge that Steve gave me. And it, it essentially answered the question that we pose at Mighty Oak style veterans. If what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? And so I gave this man a chance and I ended up, uh, uh, coming through a process of the restoration of my faith and the mentorship of Steve for over a year. And really what Steve taught me over the year was how to be the man that I believe God created me to be. And the decisions I made differently in my life changed my perspective uh, in the way I saw the world. Now I, I did find restoration in my, in my life and my family, but I began to find hope for the first time in a very long time. And I found what uh, I think most people search for their whole life, what most people need, what I needed. And that's purpose. You talk about entrepreneurship. There's no better two words tied together in entrepreneurship than, than the, the willingness to be entrepreneurial and have the entrepreneur spirit and purpose. Most people search their whole lives for purpose. And in that moment, I felt that I found it. One of, my, one of my favorite quotes is from Mark Twain. He says, the two most important days in a person's life is the day that they're born and the day that they find out why. Uh, for me in that moment, when Steve introduced me to the life I believe I was created to live, I found out why. And uh, that perspective that changed was realizing that when I went through this darkest moments of my life, I felt like I was the only one. I was all alone. Like no one could struggle the way I struggle. No one could feel the way I feel. No one could feel so hopeless. They don't want to live anymore. And I realized that I wasn't alone. There was 22 veterans a day taking their life. There was 80% divorce rate on some military bases. Like I wasn't the only one struggling with this, but I had discovered the cure. And Steve Toth had introduced me to the cure. It was like if I was dying of cancer and this guy gave me the inoculation to cancer, I couldn't keep it to myself. I didn't want to share it. I felt obligated to share it. And so a passion was really lit underneath me to share what I discovered and essentially to, in its most basic form to pay it forward. And so I made a pretty radical decision, uh, which answers you, goes back to answering your question, when did the spark come? I made a radical decision to walk away from my successful business, from our cush, uh, kind of cushy life in the Woodlands, Texas, and to venture out and to share what I discovered with others. And so my perspective changed from doing this for me, which included wealth and financial and status to turning around and doing something for others. And that was a very big perspective change in my life. And what I thought when I did that was I would, uh, I would probably never have, you know, financial security again. I would walk away from that. And I did. 
And people thought I was insane for doing it. In fact, you know, Professor Droccolino and I are really close today and friends. And he said, I didn't think you had PTSD before. I thought, now you're like, you found Jesus and you're going away and you're walking away from your school. I thought, like, man, this guy's really suffering from the war. <laughs> like, this is what he thought at the time. He thought it was crazy for doing this. But I'll tell you now, like, this has been, you know, almost, almost 10 years now. It's uh, 2010 when it happened. 2011, we started Body Oaks. I've never been so fulfilled, so joyful, so blessed. Work with an amazing organization. We're making such a world impact in my life from that spark of realizing that life wasn't about me. It was about others and taking the lessons that I've learned in my life and sharing with others. That's where the passion and the spark for this entrepreneurial journey to start Mighty Oaks was. And ultimately, uh, I love jiu-jitsu. I still train jiu-jitsu almost every day. But realizing that my calling wasn't jiu-jitsu. My calling was to uh, take the lessons of life and share with others. And uh, that's where my ultimate calling was. And I'm, I'm so thankful to be where I am today. Man, that's beautiful. Now, how was the mindset in 2011 when you started Mighty Oaks? I know that you inspired and you found your purpose. But the reason why I'm asking, because a lot of entrepreneurs, when they're starting, or people who have, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But some people struggle with the beginning of the fears and the doubts and how I'm going to pull this off. How was the mindset going in to start the foundation? Yeah, it was, um, it was a mix because I believe I had some blind, uh, some blind naiveness to it. Uh, my passion was so strong that despite people around me telling me, that, uh, you know, we had our business assessed. I was 50% owner of my gym at the time. And so we had it assessed. It was worth a lot of money, as you can imagine. My partners didn't want to buy me out. And so I ended up giving it away for what I owed in taxes that year. I think I owed like $45,000 that year in taxes. And I said, buy me out. I didn't want a security blanket. I didn't want, I knew what I was going to do was going to be hard. I think anyone that's has an entrepreneurial spirit and going to do anything that seems bold and, and, and uh, just risky because entre being an entrepreneur is risky you, you, uh, you know, it's going to be hard. If not, you should <laughs> maybe pause because you got to, you got to be aware that it's going to be difficult. And so I knew that I was smart enough to know that starting this foundation, I never ran a nonprofit before. I didn't know anything about nonprofit organizations. I did have an MBA, but this was brand new for me. I didn't know how I was going to buy groceries, much as pay for everyone to come to a program that I was going to create. It was very, it was scary, but I knew I couldn't have a safety net. And so for me, I getting rid of that gym, was taking away an exit strategy, which again, seemed crazy at the time. And I'm not recommending people do that, but I, I knew I couldn't have a security blanket. I had to dive into deep water and learn how to swim. Uh, and that's, and that, so for me, that was the, the way that I knew I had to do it. It was like, a, I couldn't have a plan B. I couldn't have an exit strategy. I had to be all in. And, uh, and so a lot of, uh, for me, a lot of it was my faith. I, I believed in my heart that, that God had called me to do this which may seem crazy to some people, but I believe in my heart that God had called me to do this. And so I had a very strong uh, spiritual security that it wasn't so much my calling, it was God's calling and that it would work out. Now, I don't believe God uses people who are blind and naive. I, be I believe God uses prepared people. And so I did a lot of preparation. I wrote a very, uh, I wrote a very strong business plan and I rallied around the right people to come around and support me. Uh, I think anytime you're going to venture off into entrepreneurship, uh, in a an entrepreneur endeavor, it's very important to, uh, identify the right people to come around you, the people with skills and resources and experience and rally them behind your cause. Rallying people behind your cause is, a, uh, I I think it's something that I've always been kind of gifted at. 
And I also think it's very important when you're going to, when you're going to venture out to find the right people, identify them and get them to get them to come alongside you in your, in your mission and vision. I was very blessed to have this early on. Oh, that's great. And what you just said, we talk about on episode 16 title, stop being an employee, being an owner. But we talk about at the end of the, each interview, um, I do what it's called the final thoughts for people who are listening for the first time, which I basically get to take away from the interview, create some content and something that can inspire and impact and improve the lives of the, the listeners. And I did talk about Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. <laughs> and he talks about just the vision of the bus that in order for you to achieve your vision, you got to make sure that three things need to happen. The right people need to be and the bus, the bus. And, uh, and second, the right people sitting on the right seats and whoever is not aligned with the vision must leave the bus. So what you said is 100% true to be surrounded by the right people to make this, this mission happen. Now, with that said, during the, of course, it's a struggle to find the right people. Sometimes you feel that you have the right people. You put them in different seats, think that, okay, this is not the position and not, and you have to sometimes get them off the bus. But what is probably one of the biggest struggles that you had in your journey so far in 10 years? I think, I think one would be back to what we we're just talking about, the right people in the bus. And I love Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. In fact, that was one of the ones I was going to mention later on today which is kind of why I chuckled. <laughs> the, uh, a lot of times when people start something, they want, they want yes people that are going to enable them. And the right people doesn't mean cheerleaders. The right people means putting the, right, the people in place that are going to hold you accountable. I, was, I don't trust myself as a human being, as a leader, as, in, in any area of my life. I don't trust myself. I, I know my faults better than anyone. So being wise and building a team around me is means building people that are going to call me and hold me accountable to my weaknesses. And this was very important to me early on in my, in my, and starting Mighty Oaks. I didn't start Mighty Oaks when I was ready. I was, my family was still bleeding and we were going to help other families. So putting the right people that would hold me accountable financially, uh, in all these different areas was very important. So this was the top echelon of my team, the board of directors, board of advisors. Uh, if you look on my, our website, we have just incredible, Colonel Al Congressman Allen West, Sergeant Majors in the Marine Corps, General Boykin. We have really strong people in our oversight. But now I had to build a team from the bottom up, the guys that can get in the trenches and do the hard work. And so this is where my biggest struggle was because I was putting people in place that had been successful in other areas of their life and, and setting them up for failure. And this is called the Peter Principle. Uh, if you've heard of the Peter Principle before, it's where you elevate someone based on their success to a level to where they're reaching competence. And then you ultimately, they're going to fail personally. Uh, so you're setting them up for failure and you're setting the organization up for failure. And so I was definitely, uh, I definitely failed as a leader through a pretty principle. And I probably hurt a lot of people along the way because I took good people who had been successful in the military and said, oh, this guy was successful in the military for 20 years. He's going to be a great marketing and communications director for Mighty Oaks. He had never did that before. He didn't understand. I'm, I'm just trusting his ability to adapt and overcome and, and figure it out. And ultimately setting them up for failure. If they were a good leader in the military, maybe they could be a good leader in a nonprofit organization. That's not always the case. And so they're built to stair step people and to the point to where you realize, okay, they've reached their potential, they're good here. But because someone succeeds at a certain level, doesn't mean you just automatically promote them this to another level to where they're gonna they're gonna fail. And so really understanding that, again, it's called the Peter Principle. Uh, was something I learned the hard way. And I would say looking back at Mighty Oaks, it was my biggest uh, biggest struggle. 
uh, of figuring out and my biggest failure as a leader. Because at one point I realized, I realized that it wasn't everyone else that was failing in these positions. I'd elevate them and I'd be like, man, I can't believe this guy was, he was great. And now he's failing. Maybe they got tired. He lost his passion. Maybe he's just like got lazy. That's the things I was thinking. But then I realized that the failure was me as a leader of not understanding what seat in a the bus they belonged in and moving into the wrong seat just because they've been there longer or had seniority. Yeah, I resonate 100% with this. Matter of fact, a lot of, the, a lot of people that I have brought to the podcast, uh, regardless of what kind of business they have, struggle with that part with staff and leadership. And I like to say for people who've been listening for a while, I say that what I've been doing jujitsu for 30 years. I've been, I started teaching in 1995. And I have to say that probably from 1995 to 2010, I had no idea that leadership was a skill. Yeah. No clue. You know, so like, ah, cool. I take guys to the tournament. I teach him. It's cool. Yay. And living the dream. But I had no idea. So since 2010, I, I started to my process of little by little. I still have a long way to go. But that's one of the things that all the listeners, man, do not underestimate that because that's uh, the struggle is real. I think some people maybe have maybe, I don't know, about a tendency to be leaders, but it's a skill. And, and so many mistakes that I made regarding to staff exactly what I said, putting, expect, and this is a, a, it's perfect what you said. Oh, this guy's good at this. I'm going to put him here. And took me a lot of beatings to, <laughs> to start making process. And we have to, we have to take those beatings. It's, it's part of it. Now, for some people, who are listening, you have a lot of people who are in transition that they are not very happy where they add professionally. They wish they'd be doing something else. Either they go into entrepreneurship route or maybe even it's a different career that maybe requires some education, whatever that is, but struggling in pulling the trigger and to move forward with their, their passion, their vision. What do you have to say to them and something that it can help? Even for people who are already entrepreneurs, they already have their business. Sometimes they already have their business, but they're not even in the, in the right business for them. They're like, man, yeah, great. Like you said, in the eyes of everyone, he's successful, but it's inside he knows that it's not. So what do you have to tell to them, suggestions that you have? Yeah, it's a really great question. I'm, I'm glad, uh, glad you're bringing it up because... I deal with this a lot at Mighty Oaks and the, the work that we do with transitioning veterans. They've you know, been in the military for four years or 20 years or over that. And, they, and, they had, and so now they have to transition to something totally different. And uh, many people in the military, their, their jobs in the military don't transition over uh, one for one to the civilian world. And so they're looking for what to do. And, and uh, this is the advice I always give. Um, it's probably not common advice, but I would say, you know, seek to deliver something that others need, not what you want right? Uh, if you make it about you and what you want and, and your goal is the pursuit of financial wealth and, uh, and status, I think most times you're going to fall short. Now, I'm, that I mean you're going to fall short. Maybe you'll make a lot of money. Maybe you'll reach a high status. But when I say fall short, you're going to fall short on the contentment and fulfillment of what you're actually looking for in the first place. But if you do this, if you seek to find what others need, and not what you want, and you identify, you can identify something that people in the world need, that the world needs. You can identify something that moves your heart, moves your soul, and you can, you can find passion about it, it ignites a passion in, inside of you. If you can find that and find a way to deliver that to others, 
you can't go wrong. Uh, you can't go, you can't go wrong. And that's kind of go back to contrasting my life. I love jujitsu, but I will never open a jujitsu school again because I love jujitsu for me. Like I love to train. I love the friends. I love the community, but running a jujitsu business, uh, I wasn't fulfilled there. Like I wasn't fulfilled running it as a business. And I, I walked away from that, not knowing that I, I thought, man, I'm leaving something I love. Now I realize like what I love is, is serving other people. Uh, and now some people could say, I'm not saying bad about jujitsu instructor because for some people serving people with jujitsu is the fulfillment that they get. I, know, I, I mean, I, I know plenty of, of jujitsu instructors like that. They're totally content doing that. But for me, that wasn't it. Seeing other people's, uh, lives get restored, their marriages get restored, they're, they're finding, they're able to plug in an avenue of life. That's where I find passion in doing, but wanting to live again when they're willing to take their life, like wanting to live again, that's something I've seen the need for. I had a solution to that need and I brought it to the table. Uh, for me, it was like, when I did that, it was like kind of seeing this need was like, there's a problem here and someone has to do something about it. Why not me? And, and that decision to do that really helped me find what I was looking for and helped me find the, that, that passion that I could deliver. And I believe that uh, a lot of times people would try to find something like a hobby or something they're personally passionate about and try to make a job out of it. For example, if I would have said, okay, I'm going to help veterans now. Uh, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to teach him jujitsu, like jujitsu for veterans, which I'm not, no, that's not a bad thing. But if I would have did that, that would have been more about what I wanted you know, to do, I want to train jujitsu and veterans need help. So that's what I'm going to do. But instead, you know, teaching veterans how to live their lives every day was the, the, the right option. It was a, it was a need that I identified and I had a mechanism to serve that need. I believe you just can't go wrong when you do that. And I, and I believe everybody could plug in a spot in, in life that they could find something that moves them. Yeah. I agree 100%. And one of the things that maybe some of the listeners, maybe you're listening right now and say, yeah, that sounds great, but I have no idea how I'm going to do that. And I always mention here a quote from Jim Rome that work full-time and you're living part-time in your dream. And one day, you know, this dream can become that, uh, that reality and the, the full-time. So you kind of went like all out, just like, boom, cut it. I'm doing some people are not ready for that. And that means, hey, stick with what you're doing right now and you're part-time. You kind of grind it out, put some extra hours, start preparing this transition mm -hmm. then to do so. But like you said, the, the main thing is to find that thing and not be more like, oh, people think I should do this or people expect me to do this. And it has to come from inside. And it's a, it's a beautiful work that you're, you're doing it, man. And in different ways, uh, it resonates too as far as my purpose. And I always mention here the podcast too, that the mission of the podcast is my mission in life to inspire, impact, and improve the lives of others. And I don't do anything. I do a lot of different things professionally. And I don't mess with anything that is not in align with that vision, with the podcast or the academy or events and different things that I do. And jujitsu for me, it of course the the vision evolved as a teenager that wants to have a school and all that kind of stuff. That is more like I said, and I love for yourself. Back then I was younger. Yeah, I'm I'm a teacher, but that was uh, the the vision evolved to start using jujitsu as a personal development tool, and not only the training, but I do believe in competitions as well. As far as just because the impact that 
tournaments made in my life gave me guidance as a, as a teenager, but also as an adult, how that's when my life started to turn around when I, I took some time away from computer and I came back, I felt how my anxiety was really bothering me. And I felt weird, not that it wasn't winning, it wasn't that, it wasn't like, and, and people would be like, man, you won by this many points, what do you think? Like, no, you don't understand, it's not about the outcome. I just, it did, didn't feel right how I was feeling. So I started to investigate. I'm like, I have to Google this. I have to do something. And that's how I got involved with mental skills training, life coaching. And then I'm like, man, this is really cool. And after two years of, of me seeing the results with, with me, I'm like, man, I need to start sharing this with my students. Yeah. And then little by little, one by one. And then I did a group class. And then the thing started to evolve to, man, uh, people have a lot to learn in in competitions, of course, jujitsu in general, but I do like the competition on how you're dealing with your emotions and under pressure situations. I found I found out about my my pattern of, of perfectionism through competitions, through studying, and, and say like, man, I'm a perfectionist in competition, and I and I am in business, you know, and I have a fear of failure in competition. Next thing, like, wow, I I do have this in a different aspect of my life. So we started to see the patterns. Uh, they, I always say that they don't disappear. You learn how to become conscious of it and then navigate through your, your world. So this is great for people really, really listen to this advice, find whatever that is, you know, and maybe start if you don't even know what that is, just start with what you don't want. <laughs> if, yeah. you, if you're in the top away, just, yeah, if it's in spot right now that you don't like, okay, you already know that this one you don't want. So it's, um, it's a journey. If you, keep, if you could keep looking for it, you will find it. Now, with the high-performance habit, what did you say is the one habit that you have daily that helps you in all aspects of your life? Well, it's, it, it also carries on to the last thing we talked about. Like, how do you do that part-time, full-time? You know, for me, I cut the cord and went dove, dove head first in the deep end. Uh, for me, whether you're doing it that way I did it, which I, again, I would recommend or doing it the way, you know, most people would with trans in transitioning. You have to be intentional, uh, intentional daily. Like, you know, and if you listen, you can write this down and make it a life statement. Like it's not going to happen. Like it, it is not just going to happen. You have to be intentional. You have to wake up every day and, and, and make daily decisions. One of the things I love about competing and, I, and how I relate this to life. And I, I love that you said when I compete, and I put a date on a calendar, like right now, you know, I got the date for the world's, uh, world's masters in August. And I just put that date on the calendar. It's something about saying like, you know, I'm competing on this date. Everything changes inside of me. I become immediately, I notice I immediately become so much more disciplined. The vitamins I take every day, the way I eat my fasting hours, I'm more disciplined, like everything in my life, the way I interact with my, I uh, manage my time. I manage my marriage. I manage my my uh, role as a dad, like my job, everything like becomes so much more disciplined when I put that date on the calendar. And so something about having that in my life and being intentional, working towards something is, uh, it just changes the regimen of my life and it ultimately creates a better outcome. It makes me a better person. So I still compete and I try to compete at least two, three times a year just because of that, because the discipline it brings in my life. This is the same thing when I put a professional goal down. When I put a goal and say, I'm going to accomplish this goal, uh, whether it's a you know, a new venture of our business or whatever. When I put that goal down on paper and, and commit myself to that, I'm, I make sure that I have discipline to be intentional about that every day. 
And even if it's something that I'm transitioning into and doing it part-time, it's, it's, uh, the intentionality of it sounds like an easy thing, but most people don't, aren't intentional about life. They wait for something just to happen. Like, I have this goal. I really want to do it. So somehow something's going to just miraculously happen for me. That doesn't work that way. You have to be able to do the whole work. You have to be able to learn. And there is a quote, one of my favorite quotes is from Brian Tracy. that say, when people are interested, they do what is convenient. When they are committed, they do whatever it takes. So yeah. to be intentional is to be committed to whatever that, that process is. Like you said, as soon as I, I know exactly what you mean. When you put the, the date down, it's on. Yeah. And then you start the process and the commitment changes. And that is the one of the, the great benefits of competition. Maybe a, I, I love when I see a guy that is 45 years old. He never competed in anything. He signed up for a local white belt division. He's going to have maybe like one or two matches. But just the fact that he made a commitment, he's going to watch his diet. He's going to try to go, you know, just watch you know, what he's going to eat or how often he's going to work out. And a lot of them being a great role model for the for their kids saying like, Hey, going out of his comfort zone, teaching that, Hey, that is not Superman. Daddy uh, loses too. So all those things there, that's why I just see you just as such an incredible personal development tool. Yeah. Win, win or lose, you're going to win because you're going to grow from that experience. And uh, we're all, we're competitors. We're all about winning, but every uh, fight that I've, you know, jujitsu match or, or MMA fight that I've won or lost, I always have grown out of them through the camps and through the training. And one thing about readiness, and you talked about this a little bit earlier about your anxiety about competing. One of the, the things that I've always said to probably my biggest skill and attribute as a fighter, uh, and I fought a lot of people and I beat a lot of people that I think were way better than me. It was because of my composure. Uh, I walked into the, the cage every time and when the cage door shut, I felt uh, a composure and a peace and a calmness that I think is not very common in, in combative uh, sports. And, uh, and uh, my composure, I believe, always comes back to knowing I did enough, preparing and doing the hard work in the beginning. I trained, I did a couple of camps with a Randy Couture and he would always say, all right, like after the weight cut, the, the haze in the barn, I mean, the work's already done. Like now it's time to have fun. And, uh, and I think just the discipline and intentionality of, of doing the whole work, whether it's your, your performance is going to show up in an MMA fight or jujitsu match or the uh, decision point in a business uh, endeavor you're doing. If you do the whole work in advance, that brings a peace, a peace and a calm over you to be able to be successful and be able to move forward. But a lot of people in life, sadly, want the shortcut. They don't want to do the hard work and they show up on game day and they're, they're just not, they're not ready. And, uh, and it, it ultimately could be their demise. Yeah. Hard work is the root of self-confidence. That is for sure. <laughs> and what did you say is the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received is uh, probably from Steve Toth. Uh, he didn't say any of his words, but I'd say if what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? Right. And it's kind of contrasts to the, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Just coming to the point and saying, Hey, what I did, is it working? Let's try something different. Yeah. I love that. Uh, Jim Brahms, <laughs> he says something like, you're not a tree, you know, you can change, you can move, you can do something else. You know, it's funny. Um, now, what advice would you give to your younger self when you started Mighty Oso? Of course, you don't want to change anything because it's part of the journey. You don't, I right. know that you have no regrets. You're in this point of your life with your family and, and with a foundation because of everything that you lived. 
But looking back into, like I said, some of the struggles, but when you started, what, what would you have done differently? What kind of advice would you give to young Chad starting the foundation? So I, I speak as if I, I started Mighty Oaks to serve others, and I did. Uh, I did start, start Mighty Oaks to serve others, but I don't think I got it until about a year in that process. So I go back and catch the, the very first, I would say, just the clear words, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about others. And that's a, I would love to give that advice to me at the 17 year old me too, to understand life is not about us. It's about others. And when you uh, ultimately want to be personal joy and personal success, if you can understand that and you serve others, you live your life to serve others, ultimately you're going to be blessed as well uh, because of the result of that. So yeah, it's not about you. And what about book that you recommend and why? Something that made an impact on, in your life in different moments of your life. Yeah, I, I like I like to read. Um, kind of adamant reader. Uh, the book I have it on my I have it right here in front of me. This is my third time reading this. It's called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. Uh, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day, and it's, it's a Christian book. It's a Christian book about leadership and about uh, not really about leadership, more about surviving in uh, like a business. So this guy uh, Mark Batterson is a he. He runs a pretty big church and ministry. And, uh, but even if you're not a Christian, it's a great book because he talks about the struggles in business and, uh, and the struggles of entrepreneurship and the failures that you might run into and how to overcome those. And so it's a crazy title, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. It's a uh, title is about a, guy, uh, a character in the Bible named Benaiah who found himself in a pit with a lion on a snowy day and he had to kill that lion and move forward. And so we're all going to face lions and adversity in life. And this book shows how to get past those. Getting close to the end of the interview, as I mentioned earlier, for people listening for the first time after the interview, I like to reflect on what was said. There's a lot of there's a lot of great information that you dropped here. So probably is going to be one of my tough final thoughts when I say tough of tough ones. I mean, that's good because I had to research more and study more. And that's when I learn even more. So, yeah, just stick around for that. Now, what are you currently excited about? What's going on with uh, Mighty Oaks and everything else? Yeah, I mean, Mighty Oaks is doing incredible. Uh, this year, we just reached uh, over, spoke to about 110,000 active duty troops. That's what I do. I travel around and speak to active duty troops. And then our team runs our resiliency recovery, our recovery programs. And we've just reached 2,600 graduates. We're running 30 programs a year right now. I think the most exciting thing for me personally going on right now is my book, An Unfair Advantage. Uh, I just got a letter this letter this week in the mail from the president, uh, nice. who, uh, about my book. So I got a really nice letter. Um, I posted it on social media because cool. I couldn't help myself, uh, but, uh, the book's being made into a movie, a motion picture film. And, uh, for those in the jujitsu world, Draculino will be a character in the film and it'll be, uh, so it's pretty exciting, but also very terrifying for someone to make a life, uh, life, a uh, feature life, a uh, feature film, uh, life story about you. Uh, and, but one of the things I'm super excited about the film is that we got it to where at the end of the film, they're going to, uh, promote Mighty Oaks and as for uh, all the veterans around who need help, uh, those struggling with suicide, divorce, all those things. So that's what I'm so excited about with the film, uh, is that the, that it's going to be able to reach so many people and be a tool to impact other people's lives. Man, that's beautiful. Chad, thank you so much for taking your time and I know you're busy dude with a lot of the traveling with everything you do so i appreciate your time i'm glad that we we had the chance to connect and we're definitely gonna uh, see each other at some point and yeah to 
meet each other personally, but I really appreciate your, your time, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. You know, we're only an hour and a half away from each other, so we'll, we'll see each other soon. Cool. So for all the listeners, stick around for my final thoughts. Who's? Let me share with you my final thoughts from the interview with the Chad Robbie show. If you're listening just to the final thoughts on Instagram TV at Gustavo Dantas BJJ, besides being a third degree black belt and former MMA pro fighter, Chad is a former force recon Marine who served eight deployments in Afghanistan. He's the president and founder of Mighty Oaks Foundation, a leading nonprofit organization serving the military community with highly successful peer-to-peer, faith-based, combat trauma recovery programs and combat resilience conferences. It was an incredible interview. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, visit www.thebjjmentalcoachpodcast.com. It was hard to pick only a few takeaways since he dropped so much knowledge and great stories. He shared his struggles with PTSD that inspired him to create the Mighty Oaks Foundation and help other veterans since at least 20 veterans commit suicide daily in the United States. He mentioned the importance of being intentional with everything you do in your life, personally and professionally. And my takeaway from the interview was when he said, it's not about you, it's about others, which inspired me to title this podcast, It's Not About You. The final thoughts today are dedicated to all of us, including you, to reflect on the statement, it's not about you, it's about others. Do you believe in this statement? I want to share a story with you, but first, let me ask you this. Do you remember when you were 12 years old? What was happening back then? Was it a healthy childhood? What if when you were 12, you started to use drugs? Next thing, you're dealing drugs and in trouble with the law for the next 10 years of your life. What person would you become after these 10 years? What would be the odds of you turning your life around to a positive route by that point in your life? If you're alive or probably in prison, what are the odds of you saying, it's not about me, it's about others? The odds are very low. However, as the motivational speaker, Les Brown, says, it's possible. It's possible for people to turn their lives around, and martial arts can be an incredible personal development tool for those who are on the wrong path in life. That is why a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners say jiu-jitsu saves lives. And it did save the life of 35-year-old Eduardo Oliveira from Rio Grande do Sul, Brazil. Eduardo grew up in a rough, impoverished community in Porto Alegre, Rio Grande do Sul, and in Brazil, usually the drug dealers start carving a career plan for the young kids who start as watchers. They watch if the police are coming and let the drug dealers know. For this kind of work, a 12-year-old can make more than mom and dad together, plus flashing new shoes and jewelry is very tempting for those kids. The jiu-jitsu The jiu-jitsu projects located inside these impoverished communities can literally save lives. And Eduardo was saved by jiu-jitsu and achieved his black belt by his coach, Guto Campos. Eduardo realized that it was not about him. It's about others. And decided to start a BJJ social project to teach kids around the age that he began to get in trouble. At first, he used some old beat-up mats and started to ask for donations for geese. And the project started to grow. Now in 2019, almost a decade later, 
He teaches 200 kids in two locations for free. And at the HQ, which is attached to his house, where he lives with his wife, two kids, plus 18 adopted kids. You heard that right. 18. Gaditas became an orphanage. For those who don't know, I'm the co-founder of Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, former Live Jiu-Jitsu, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. The organization has been supporting social projects currently in Brazil and the United States who offer jiu-jitsu class in underprivileged communities, inspiring, impacting, improving the lives of thousands of kids and young adults, helping them to stay away from drugs and crime, creating hope and creating champions on and off the mats. Since 2010, we have been helping projects to buy new mats, geese, and pay for tournament registrations. However, in 2019, we decided to rebrand and to change the mission of the organization inspired by Gaditas, who was working on expanding their facility. They used to have one big room full of bunk beds, and his goal was to create more rooms to split the boys from the girls, the little ones from the big ones, build extra bathrooms, and a new kitchen, which he did. He started construction with no money, and through Gadita's supporters' donations, they began to make progress. However, due to the lack of funds, the process was paused. That is when Jiu-Jitsu Tribe and its donors came to the picture. We helped to speed up the process with the help of the donors who believe that it's not about them. It's about others. And raised $10,000, almost 40,000 reais in Brazilian currency, to finish the main part of the construction. There are pictures and videos available on tribecharity.org or livejujitsu.org. They arrange school tutors, local doctors who donate their time to check their health, physicians, dentists, personal trainers, psychologists, anyone who can help with their health and development, and mainly believe that it's not about them, it's about others. The project survives by donations. However, not always they have the money to pay for water, electricity, and even food even though they received donations from churches and a few local restaurants. Eduardo said, quote, Water and electricity are our biggest concerns. Since we have been behind on payments, they have disconnected the service multiple times. That keeps me up every night, unquote. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's mission now is to help on projects' makeovers. However, we don't want to fix up a place and move on to the next. Since they need help with their necessary monthly expenses like water, electricity, and food consistently so they can keep serving others and changing lives. So I personally asked Eduardo, how far are you behind on the bills? He said, since last year. By the way, I had this conversation with him on May 11th, 2019. So I asked, how much is the total? Can you send me all the water and electricity bills so I can see? He sent me a total amount of 4,143 reais, equivalent to $1,100, a lot of money for them. On the same day, we made a deposit, and on May 13th, he was able to pay off the debt. I told him our goal is to establish a 12-month agreement with Gajitas, where Jiu-Jitsu Tribe and its donors can send you 1,500 reais per month, around $400 per month. And at the end of the 12 months, we can reevaluate the agreement and it will depend on how well our fundraisers do, plus, since we help other projects as well, how many monthly donors we can find to help you with water, electricity, and food. As a religious man, he said it would be a gift from God. Now, imagine the school that you train at. 
Picture 70, 70, kids and teen classes all together. And your teacher tells you, we're going to give you all the money and your job is to figure out the logistics of flying with all 70 of them to a tournament with a couple of helpers. How crazy would that sound? Not crazy enough because this is what Eduardo and his wife did for the Brazilian Nationals at the end of April 2019. Oh, there's a little detail missing. They started from zero, no money, months of fundraising. Do you still have any doubt that they believe it's not about them, it's about others? The amazing thing is Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, in partnership with Jiu-Jitsu On The Road, also a nonprofit organization who focuses on others in visits and promotes social projects all over Brazil, making many documentaries, travel with Gaditas to Sao Paulo, for the Brazilian Nationals, and you'll be able to see the documentary at jujitsutribe.org. Last week, I had a conversation with José Luis, the co-founder of Jiu-Jitsu on the Road, with his wife, Aline, who was telling me how amazing the experience was and what an unbelievable culture Eduardo has created. And he's the one who told me, Gustavo, Gaditas is not just a jiu-jitsu social project. It's an orphanage. That is why I mentioned earlier, he experienced and heard so many impactful stories, like from a teenage girl who doesn't live there but trains at Gaditas, and she was spending a week there. Off camera, José Luis asked, can you tell me a story from Gaditas, something that you've seen Eduardo do before? She said, yes, I have multiple stories. However, this one impacted me the most. One day, Eduardo called everyone to the mats and said, we don't have any food in the house. You're going to sit in a circle and pray for help. She said, I don't have a reason to lie. I don't know how that happened, but close to an hour after we sat, I then dropped off a donation of food for the weak. Donors who also believe that it's not about them, it's about others. I don't know about you, but when I heard that, I had tears in my eyes. As I mentioned to you, our goal is to send 1,500 reais per month around $400 per month for 12 months. It will depend on how well our fundraiser will do plus how many monthly donors we can find. And if you have been practicing jiu-jitsu for a while, you have to agree that BJJ is not only a great way to learn how to defend yourself and to get in better shape, but it's also an amazing personal development tool that unfortunately is not accessible to everyone especially to kids and young adults from impoverished communities. And you can help the process of introducing jiu-jitsu to them and making a difference in their lives. Projeto Gajita saves lives, literally. Eduardo and his wife live 24-7 for others, for the kids. That is their job. Eduardo's purpose is to change lives through jiu-jitsu. Despite all the difficulties and struggles, he woke up for life and had his vision of living for others to prevent that more kids experience what he lived. Now, I'd like you to reflect on your purpose. Do you think about that at all? I believe we all have a purpose in life, and it's your job to find yours and do your best to live in congruence with the vision of your life because life is short, so might as well live a meaningful and fulfilling one. As Chad said, it's not about you, it's about others. If you're already supporting a nonprofit organization, congratulations and keep it up. If you're currently not, it's never late to begin. Check out the MightyOaksFoundation.org and TribeCharity.org to make a donation. 
both organizations and its donors are committed to serving others. Now, what about you? Oh, We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, but the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.